We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. It's always a challenge to decide which of the many texts on the resurrection to do on Resurrection Day. Um, yes, I prefer that term. It's just, I'm weird, I suppose. Because um, it actually communicates what this day is about, I suppose, is why I like it. We're only going to read verses 1 through 11, although I will make reference to later verses uh, in the course of the sermon. But hear now God's Word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's pray. Father, as... Paul and the apostles preached, so now I do. And may I preach the same message that they preached. Help me to proclaim this, your testimony, with simplicity this morning. Help me to, as Paul did, to know Christ and Him crucified and resurrected, that your people might know Him more completely. Demonstrate your power through the Spirit so that our faith would not rest on the wisdom of mere men, but upon the power of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. hope I'm not going to step on any toes for a moment this morning. But I was reading one of the few books that had a section on the resurrection. And they mentioned one of the songs that many people love. Ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. And he noted, and I agreed, that uh, essentially that would be a hymn that the great liberal theologian Rudolf Bultmann would sing and approve of. Because for Bultmann, the resurrection was not a bodily, physical resurrection. For Rudolf Bultmann, who was one of the very first of the what's called the existential theologians, uh, you know, and this led to a liberalism, it was more of a resurrection of experience. 
not a physical bodily resurrection. What mattered is not that Jesus actually rose again from the dead. What mattered was that the disciples believed that he rose again from the dead. And that all that matters is that you believe it and that you uh, then partake of salvation through believing something that apparently didn't happen. He would go on to say that how can you expect a modern man who has TV and radio and microwave ovens and nuclear bombs to believe in something like a resurrection? Bishop Spong, who many of, may have, you may have heard of, if you haven't, be glad. Um, Bishop Spong went farther than Boltmann. He, you know, really based upon his, his thought upon the work of uh, David Hume in this one respect, in that he was believing that miracles cannot happen. He had a presupposition that indicated that miracles cannot happen, therefore Jesus' resurrection could not happen. He said, this is not the sort of universe where that sort of thing happens. And so he went a little bit farther than Boltmann, uh, both in, because he was, He's a contemporary. I mean, he's alive now still. He's very old. Boltman, long gone. But how can men who, have, who know that people have walked upon the moon believe in such a silly thing as the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That's his mindset. And so for him, it's not even you believe it and you receive it. He doesn't even believe in these things. He goes farther than Boltman does. To which I would probably say to any of them, would any of the ancient people who believed in the resurrection, would they believe that man could walk upon the moon? Would they believe that I could pick up a telephone and talk to somebody in Paris, France right now? No. So that answers nothing. Let's get to the Scriptures and see what the Scriptures teach us about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The big idea this morning, if you have your notes and you follow along with those things, is different slightly than what you have in there. My big idea this morning is that Christ's bodily resurrection is essential to our salvation. And I want to really key on that aspect of His bodily resurrection, contra Boltmann and Bishop Spong. Essential is another essential word to what I'm trying to say this morning. The Corinthian church was a little different than Bishop Spong and Rudolf Bultmann. They struggled with the idea of a future resurrection. There were some that had risen up among them who were denying that there would be a future resurrection. There was sort of this Gnostic notion that had captured the church and distorted the church in, in numerous ways, and Paul has been enumerating them throughout this letter. And he spends a rather lengthy amount of this letter right here talking about this subject because it was so important. They seem to have embraced Christ's resurrection, but they had kind of missed the boat when it came to their own resurrection. They thought that because now they were spiritual beings, they were going to be done with the physical body. That there was no bodily resurrection for believers at the end. And pause, we're going to see, Paul says those things are connected. You can't have one without the other. And so Paul goes on at length about the reality of Christ's bodily resurrection, that he might prove 
our bodily future resurrection. He shows them that how important this is, that it is a part of the gospel that they believed. Not just the gospel that he, Paul, preached, but as he says at the end of this passage, the, the same gospel that all of the apostles preach. They all had this as an essential part of the gospel. Paul starts off with this phrase of first importance. Sort of a rabbinical phrase pointing to something that has authority. Something that is foundational. Something you really can't miss or shouldn't miss. Because if you do, everything goes astray. And so, there are three foundational truths or events that are part of the gospel that he lays out. And the first of which is that Christ died. In other words, Paul is saying this is a verifiable fact. There were witnesses to this event. You have Mary and Mary. You have the apostles. You have the soldiers who were there. You have Pontius Pilate who sentenced him to death. You probably even have the records that indicate that he was sentenced to death. There's probably a record that was there that indicated that the soldiers came back and made known that yes, indeed, he had died. It was a historical fact that he died. As so many outside Jerusalem witnessed his death upon the cross. Paul also says that he was buried, that he was raised. Fewer people could testify about his burial, but there were some. There was, of course, the ones who buried him, Joseph of Arimathea, who went to Pontius Pilate, who went to the Romans and sought his body, and then got his body down off the cross and brought it to the garden, and then stuck it into the tomb. And, and did the minimal preparations necessary. Not only that, there were the women who followed Jesus, who followed the body and knew exactly where it was buried. But not only that, you have the, uh, the soldiers that were sent there because the Jewish leaders went to Pilate saying, these, he just, Jesus said he was going to be raised in three days. And so his followers might try to steal the body. And so they too could verify that the tomb was there, that Jesus' body was there, that the tomb was sealed. Eyewitnesses. Apparently, Boltman and Spong don't have much respect for eyewitnesses. Not only was that witnessed, but the resurrection was witnessed. Paul doesn't mention the guards that ran away when the earthquake came, when the angel rolled back the stone. But we have the women who went to finish preparing his body. We have the apostles. We have, as Paul says, over 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says, some of them have fallen asleep, but most of them still live. And in other words, you can check with them. You could go to the church in Jerusalem. Remember, Corinth was a, a trade city. You know, there were lots of people coming in and out of that city. And, you know, it's not like that huge of a world for them to go to Jerusalem to meet the church, who? Witnesses could come forth. I saw him. And his resurrection was bodily, as Luke 
and Matthew and John make clear. Because the disciples didn't just see some phantom, they touched him. He was solid. Thomas puts his fingers in the wounds. Not only that, but he eats food. Didn't vanish, except inside his body. Physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus was testified to by numerous eyewitnesses. And not only that, but Paul says twice for emphasis here that all of this was in accordance with the Scriptures. These were not events that should have taken people by surprise, but in fact they had been prophesied by the prophets. They were prophesied in the Psalms. We could see this Psalm 22, for instance. We could see this as well. The passage in Isaiah that we read, chapter 53, talks not just about his death, but also alludes to the reality of his resurrection. He's, re- he's removed. He sees his offspring. He's alive. And so the prophets testified to all of this. And so Baltman and Spong deny the clear testimony of the eyewitnesses. And this teaches us that presuppositions matter. If your presupposition is that miracles don't happen, then no matter how many miracles you see, you're going to deny them and explain them away. But if your worldview says that, you know what, if there is a God and God is almighty, he can do miracles within the created order, then you will accept them when they occur. So contrary to the modern objections, the resurrection is, in fact, a verifiable fact. Secondly, the gospel is God's purpose in those historical facts or events. I changed that one around a little bit too. So, The gospel is God's purpose in those historical facts or events. See, God does not leave us to kind of figure out the meaning of these events. He provides an authoritative interpretation of these events so that we understand why they took place, not just that they took place. And this is what frustrates, this is one of my little frustrations. Some of you may have seen this earlier on Facebook this week. There's so many books devoted to the fact of the resurrection. The, as we said, the, the, uh, apologetic nature of the resurrection, but there's so few that are written about the theological significance and the implications of the resurrection. We need more books like that. We've talked about that it happened, but now we need to talk about what it means. And so Paul starts off not with the resurrection, but again with, with his death, and he died for our sins. He provides an interpretation of the death. Jesus didn't just die because he got old, didn't die because someone didn't like him. He died specifically for our sins. He was a substitute for sinners. We have to believe that. That is an essential of fundamental importance for the gospel, that Jesus died for sinners. That Jesus was, in fact, as Paul talks about in Romans 5, in which we talked about a little bit on Thursday evening, Jesus was, in fact, the second Adam, the one to undo what the first Adam did. He's going to take the mess that Adam made, and he's going to set it all right. And it begins with his death upon the cross. The second Adam, who fully endured the wrath of God for the people that he loved. 
the resurrection. The resurrection is, in part, God's declaration that Jesus is vindicated or justified. What do I mean by that? Is that He had no sin of His own for which to pay. But God has accepted His payment for our sin. And so, sin and death have no hold on Him anymore, and so He is vindicated or justified by God as righteous and raised from the dead. That's only part of it. First Peter, for instance, notes that um, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so the, the resurrection is the source of our being born again into this new hope that we have. Gives us hope, assurance. Here in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, however, later on down in verse 23, Paul talks about how Christ is the first fruits. And that is a typical Jewish phrase. It's the, the first fruits of a harvest uh, upon which, you know, when, when that comes in well, you have a, a relatively sure hope that the rest of the harvest is going to come in pretty well. And so Jesus is the first fruits of an impending harvest with regard to his resurrection. His resurrection is the first, and therefore, Paul says, ours will surely follow in same, the same fashion. His was bodily, ours will be bodily. This week I came across, uh, in my reading, something from physics. Last time I had physics was 10th grade. No, it wasn't 10th grade. 11th grade. It's been a while. There's been some developments that have been taught since I have uh, been through school. And this is probably one of them, and this arose after Einstein. So what they discovered is what they call quantum entanglement. And if you want to know more about this, you can ask Liz, you can ask Daniel. I'm sure they know far more about it than I do. But this idea of quantum entanglement is that you can take subatomic particles, you can split them in two, and you can separate them by an infinite distance. And what you do to one, if you spin it to the left, the other one is also going to spin to the left. That for some reason, though they are now separated, they're still as you know, entangled. There's, still, there's some, some connection between them that exists. And Christ's resurrection is, and ours is, is like that. They're separated, not, not just by space, but they're separated by time. But they are linked together by God such that one cannot happen without the other. And so our resurrection is sure because Christ's has already taken place. He is the first fruits. And so we can, we can be reassured that our bodily resurrection will happen precisely because of His bodily resurrection in the past. And that is meant to offer us comfort as we continue to endure the sin and misery of this present life. Some of you know I had a bad back week. I think it was the Desert Museum that did me in. But 
I long, as I mentioned to Cinda, when I came into the office one day after my third trip to the chiropractor, oh, I cannot wait to get my new back. Some of you in this room have the same sentiment, I know, because you've told me this. Not only that, but I cannot wait to be done with my sin. I am weary of sinning against my wife, against my children, against my God, against you. That is part of our hope, that there one day we will have bodies and we will not sin. It is hope for those who mourn because they have lost loved ones in Christ, as Paul talks about those who have fallen asleep in Christ. We have hope because Christ is the first fruits of the bodily resurrection. Not only that, but Paul says in verse 25, He must reign until He puts His enemies under His feet. And so what we see here is that the resurrection begins the messianic reign of Jesus Christ. He is now seated upon the throne. And because He is seated upon the throne, He is able to bestow salvation upon all who believe. In fact, He is able to send the Spirit, not just upon those who believe, but to send the Spirit to cause people to believe. to bring the ones that He chose before the creation of the world into perfect fellowship with Himself. He is able to do this. Jesus, as the second Adam, He was raised and exalted in order to dispense salvation to us. And so we have to say that if there is no resurrection, there is no Gospel. As Paul said in here in 15, He said, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we have no hope. We are among all people to be the most pitied because we believe a lie. We're we're basing not just our present life, but our future life on a lie. So if there is no resurrection, brothers and sisters, be done with Christianity. But there has been one. So these events were the hinge upon which history and our salvation hangs and turns. But Paul doesn't just say that. There's more going on here in the midst of these 11 verses. Because the Gospel calls all to faith in Christ who died and rose again for sinners. This was the message. This was the good news that Paul had preached to them, as he says right here. And as I, as I mentioned, you know, at the very end of this passage, he says, this is what all of the apostles preach. This is the consistent gospel of the church. And he notes, he reminds them of something. You received. This is the same gospel you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. And so he reminds them that they received the message he preached as true. They might be a little confused now, but they received it as true then when he was among them. They repented of their sins. They began to follow Jesus. I'm sure they probably asked uh, Paul the same question that the, the first 
people in Jerusalem on Pentecost asked Peter after his very first sermon, how then can we be saved? And he said, repent and be baptized, each one of you, for your sins. And so the gospel requires a response of faith on our behalf. In fact, no one could be a Christian if they don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. Or you have a hard time with this passage. Because Paul says this is part of the bottom line, basic Christianity. If you don't have this, you don't have Christianity. You might have a nice sentimental religion, but you don't have Christianity. And so guys like Boltmann and Bishop Spong find themselves beyond the pale of Orthodox Christianity. I'm not sure what Spong believes, but Boltmann wanted a sentimental sort of religion, and that will save no one. Paul says this same thing in Romans chapter 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, if you don't believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you're not going to be saved. It's an essential belief for Christians. So, not only had they received this, but Paul says that now they're standing in it because they, can, they, they still... See, they... they had not yet denied the bodily resurrection of Christ. They had just denied the future bodily resurrection of believers. And so Paul's going to, you know, is trying to get them to embrace that too. But right now, they're, they're still standing in grace as a result of this message. Remember, he does call them brothers. He hasn't said, you apostate her- heretics. Okay? He's still calling them brothers. There's still chi- time for this, uh, for them to come back to the fullness of the truth. They still have enough of the truth that they're in the camp. So this gospel was at work in them in the present. But not only that, but it was going to work for them in the future. It was saving them. You're being saved with an eye toward the future. Okay, The, the, the saving work of the gospel was not done yet. They had received many of God's promises, but there were still some of those not yet promises, and the big one is the resurrection of the dead. Glorification. It will surely happen but they had not yet received it. And so these things are true for all who have received the gospel. And so if you have received the gospel, these things are true for you. If you don't see them as taking place in your, in your existence, then have you believed the gospel? Have you truly believed this message of Christ's death for sinners, of His burial, of His resurrection on the third day? Have you believed that? He continues. It reminds them, if you hold fast. We came up with something similar to this when we were studying Colossians. That we must continue to trust in Christ and this message. It's about perseverance or preservation. God's side of it. He preserves us so that we persevere in the faith. 
Paul would not agree with those who think that all you need to do is raise your hand, walk the aisle, say the sinner's prayer, whatever, and that's it. Signed, sealed, delivered. Doesn't matter what happens to you the rest of your earthly days. Okay, there are people who believe that. That's not what Paul believed. Paul believed our, our salvation is sure if we have saving faith. And one of the signs of saving faith is that it perseveres through trial, through affliction, just through the length of days. In other words, we continue to cling to Jesus Christ as He is presented in the Gospel. Crucified, dead and buried, raised on the third day, ascended into heaven where He sits at the right hand of God the Father. That's saving faith. Paul goes even further. That phrase, by the grace of God... I am what I am. Paul talks about in this passage how grace changed him. Because he was a persecutor of the church. And now he was a proclaimer or preacher of the gospel. Something significant happened to Paul. Grace. So not only does Jesus save us from our sins, but Jesus changes us. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to become an apostle and you're going to travel the world and, and preach the gospel everywhere. Okay? That's, that, we don't need to go you know, there with this sort of thing. But I'm reminded of what Charles Spurgeon once said. The grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. If it's a grace of a kind of grace that leaves you essentially unchanged in how you live, how you act, what you live for, what your priorities and commitments are, if if this grace leaves you unchanged in that, it's easier for me since I was converted as an adult. Some of you who were converted as children, it's harder to kind of wrap your head around that one. But nonetheless, are you like everyone else or do you have biblical priorities? Okay. The grace of God will not leave you unchanged. It may find you as a mess, but Jesus doesn't leave you a mess. You are progressively less of a mess. <laughs> okay. Some of us were really messy when Jesus found us, you know, and so there's still mess that he's dealing with. And uh, some of us were only slightly messy when Jesus found us, but everyone's still got some mess. But there ought to be less mess. Jesus loves us enough to begin that process of remaking us, reshaping us, reforming us, revitalizing us, so that we are less like the first man, the first Adam, and more like the second Adam. So, Adam disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden and was cast out. Jesus, as we saw Thursday, entered the Garden of Gethsemane to do what Adam didn't, and that was to submit to God 
and then die for our sins. But Jesus was buried in another garden. A lot of gardens that are significant in the Bible. And from that garden, He rose again on the third day. And as the second Adam, He is the Savior and King who bestows salvation even while He works to subdue His enemies. And so the resurrection is not just a nice, pious add-on to the atonement, but it actually is an essential work of Christ for our salvation. And as such, it must be both clearly proclaimed and believed in by all who want to be saved. And all who do want to believe, oh, sorry, all who do believe, now await their own resurrection at the end of time. So, do you have an eye toward that? Do you have a hope for that? It's only a sure hope if it's rooted in Christ who was raised. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. I'm grateful for the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead. That there's no basis for thinking that it's just some sort of um, shared daydream and fantasy on the behalf of the disciples. But there are so many clear evidences in Scripture that it took place. And that these people can be relied upon precisely because they gave their lives for it. So, Father, help us to um, cling to that hope as it is found in Jesus. Knowing that because He has been raised, we've been made alive with Him. United to Him, we are alive to You and in Your presence in the Spirit. But we still long for that day when we shall have new bodies which fully obey You, which bring You glory and honor in all things. So Father, sustain us by this hope as we encounter our sin and the sin of those of people against us, as we encounter misery, sadness, sorrow. Continue to bring us back to the reality of Christ crucified and resurrected for our salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.